Again, we start a new series called Family Chat. Um, I'd like to welcome our uh, Stevensville campus and our uh, Benton Heights campus. Uh, all the campuses are together uh, this weekend. I want to have a chance to uh, address the topic that we're going to start out with in our, this Family Chat series, myself, and so I want to welcome our other campuses uh, that are that will be join us by video this weekend. Uh, we get, we're going to be looking at several passages of Scripture um, over the course of uh, the next um, or tonight, but it, uh, tonight we start out uh, this family chat series, and over the course of the next few weeks, we're going to look at a variety of topics, and we're going to use the master, some words from the master teacher, Jesus, uh, in what is arguably his greatest uh, teaching uh, series, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, and within the Sermon on the Mount, um, a very specific set of teachings uh, called the Beatitudes, and we're going to use those Beatitudes as the blessed are the um, Beatitudes as jumping off points to look at as a kind of a foundational point, uh, different topics that we'll be talking about that relate to family. Now, if you, uh, you think, well, that's for somebody else, you might be single, you might be widowed, you might be divorced or whatever, it's not, this is for everybody, we're going to apply uh, what we have to, uh, to learn through this uh, series, uh, no matter who you are or what your place in life is right now. Uh, take your Bible, if you would, and we're going to jump right into it. We've got a lot to cover uh, this uh, weekend. Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, the first of the Beatitudes that we're going to look at. We're going to kind of skip around within them, not going necessarily uh, any order. But the word of the Lord says this, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, as we think about what Jesus is telling us, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. There's something interesting, uh, something unusual really going on in the Greek in those words, uh, hunger and thirst in the Greek. They're, 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 uh, they're said in the accusative uh, case, which in other words, uh, when it says those who hunger and thirst, it's not meaning uh, hungering and thirsting after a piece of something, but the whole something. So in other words, uh, instead of hungering, hungering after a piece of the pizza... What he's saying is, you need to hunger and thirst after the entire pizza. So when he says hunger and thirst after righteousness, what he's saying is not just a piece of righteousness that you think is right or uh, a right living, and to hunger and thirst after that piece of what it looks like to live right, but to hunger and thirst after the entire pizza. You can't pick and choose what it looks like to hunger and thirst after. And so with that foundation in mind, uh, this weekend, we're going to look at what is the biggest cultural issue of our day. And just to be clear, that's not um, if one of the Kardashians is going to get divorced or not. That's not the biggest uh, cultural issue of the day. Uh, what we're talking about uh, this weekend is the Supreme Court ruling, uh, the SCOTUS ruling, uh, legalizing gay marriage. And what impact does that have? We chat as a family. What impact does that have on us? What does that impact does that have? What implications does that have on our culture, on our families? This is an issue that if we're going to be true to God's word, and when I was 16 years old, God called me into ministry. And I remember when I was a young man and I just entered ministry, I graduated from college. I was in a small town in Effingham, Illinois, serving in a little church, and there was a group of pastors that got together, and I was in this pastor's meeting with all these men that I looked up to, and they were talking about, uh, they're actually at the time talking about abortion. We were talking about in, our, in our, the congregation that I served at the time, 
We were talking about how we were uh, just talking about that issue with our people and looking at it from Scripture. And one of the, 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 the senior pastor in the room serving the largest church in the community said, you know what, I don't know how you guys get away with talking about that from your pulpit. They would crucify me if I talked about anything like that from my pulpit. And at 21 years of age, I vowed to my God that I would never, ever be that guy. And that I would always stand on what God's word said. And so with that, we need to talk as a family. We need to chat as a family and talk about the thing that is the most important issue on the minds and the hearts of our generation at this moment in time. Now I want to say a couple things up front. First, uh, no matter what you think about this issue, I want to encourage you to... uh, just hang with me till the end. Whether you agree with me as we go through this, whether you agree or not, to just hear me out. And then uh, prayerfully hear me out and just listen to what God is saying through what I have to say through his word. And, uh, and then uh, the other thing I want to ask is I don't want to hear any amens. I don't want to hear any clapping. I don't want to hear any, any of that. I just want you to listen, not to me, but to the word of the Lord tonight. The second thing that I would say as a matter of um, just housekeeping, is uh, that I'm sorry. That I'm sorry for the way that some Christians have handled themselves around this issue. For those Christians that have spewed hate and venom, that have posted hateful things on social media, for jokes, for off-color remarks that are clearly wrong. If you read the entire Bible... And if you live by the entire Bible, you will know that 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 is clearly wrong. And if you are here this weekend and you struggle with same-sex attraction, you struggle, if you've been hurt, if you've been offended by some Christian that told some joke or, or made some comment, I just want you to know that that breaks the heart of God for his people to misrepresent him could call upon him and take his name, take the name of Christ, and then to misrepresent him. And so, I'm sorry. And I want you to know that you are welcome in this church, and we are glad that you're here. The third thing that I would say is that this church is a church filled with broken people. That we're all sinners, except for the grace of God. That there's any number of types of sexual sin. That sexual sin comes in any number of varieties. There's premarital sex, there's adultery, there's pornography, and there's homosexuality. They're all addressed in Scripture, and they've all been addressed in my ministry over the years. So I'm not picking and choosing. I remember the day that I went to a a leader in the church's home, and I called him on the carpet for his adulterous affair that I had found out about. I remember the day that... uh, I found out that I had a staff member that was having an affair, that was committing adultery. Within 30 minutes of that phone call, I walked into his office, and I told him, you have two choices. You can resign by 4 o'clock, or I'm going to call the elders together, and you'll be fired. I don't pick and choose, and you can't pick and choose about sin, and you you get all over one thing, and and you don't stand up for what's right somewhere else. God's word is clear. We're all sinners. And so, except by the grace of God, we are all separated from God. 
And so this is a church that will always welcome sinners, that will always welcome people, no matter where they are, no matter what sin they struggle with, this will, as long as I pastor this church, this absolutely will be a place where anybody that walks in off the street is welcome here and loved here. Not loved to just, just kind of stay where we're at, but loved as Jesus loved with truth and love and grace and mercy and long-suffering. Let me just kind of outline this weekend our journey. First, we'll look at some text to talk about what the Bible has to say about homosexuality. Second, we'll look at and, and, and marriage. And then second, we'll look at some key objections to those texts and talk about uh, objections to tr- the traditional view of homosexuality and, and marriage. And then third, we'll look at what's ex- at stake uh, in this issue and then we'll conclude by kind of where we are as a church and where we go from here. So let's jump in. We've got a lot of ground to cover. And so let me just kind of start with some foundational text about uh, kind of the pattern of the family from Scripture. So we'll start at the very beginning in creation with Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. It says this, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them, and God blessed them. And God said, to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So you notice male and female were created. Uh, this is what that basically the, the first verse we want to look at talks about. Then in Genesis uh, 2, verses 8, starting verse 18, and we'll skip around a little bit, but and then God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Then skip down to verse 20. And God made, uh, gave names to all, and the man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. And then skip down again. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. And so here's the solution to that dilemma, that issue. And so therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The institution, uh, the first institution that God created was not the church. We love the church, but the, the first institution that God created was the family. And we see it outlined here in Scripture. It was affirmed here in this, in this passage that, that marriage, as you, as you look in this, in this passage, it says a man and a woman together. That was, that was the way that marriage was, was birthed by God. It was his idea. And from the patriarchs in Scripture through to Jesus Christ and on through 20 centuries of church history, that, that man and woman marriage has been what has been affirmed uh, uh, throughout Throughout Christian history, you know that kind of foundation of what marriage of what marriage is. Let's look at some specific now texts that have to do uh, with the subject of homosexuality. And there's about seven of them. We're going to uh, look at most of them, and I'm going to summarize another one. And so the first one is a story that you might have been familiar with: the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's a story found in Genesis 19. We don't have time to read all of that story. But throughout the rest of Scripture, this story of Sodom and Gomorrah is, uh, is one that becomes synonymous with God's judgment, with extreme uh, sinfulness. Uh, in, in, the, in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, you see that as a result of, uh, of sin, that, that, that those, uh, those cities were destroyed by sulfur and fire, rain down from above. And so then throughout Scripture, you see that, again, that, that those words, Sodom and Gomorrah, and you still, to this day, kind of people get that when you say that, kind of get that idea of, of judgment. Now, we're not going to take time to read the entire story, but there is an interesting kind of commentary in the New Testament in the book of Jude, and we're going to look at that in just a second, that kind of gives us some context to what was going on uh, in the story here in Genesis 19. Genesis 19, if you don't know the story, 
Genesis 19 is a story of two guys, strangers, that come to this town, Sodom. There's a guy by the name of Lot that lived there, and he met them at the, at the gate to the city. He invites them to come to his house, which was the custom of their day to very, be very hospitable. He invites them when, dark, when night comes, darkness comes. The men of Sodom kind of get together and go as a gang, a mob, to, the, to uh, Lot's home, and they demand that Lot... Uh, release or to, they, that they he he get the let these guys out these two guys these two strangers to the city that that he that he send them out because they want to have sex with these two guys the the men of the city that's what they're talking about now as we look at what we're talking about here in our culture violent gang rape is what this is this story is about is very obviously different than. Two men, two women in a consensual and covenantal sexual relationship when we talk about gay marriage. That's not, that's not the picture that we see in this, uh, of what was going on in this particular story, to be fair to, this, to, to, what, to the text. You look in Ezekiel, and the case can be made that actually Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed not for the reasons of homosexuality, but for other reasons. The lack of hospitality, the lack of caring for the poor were reasons that Ezekiel seems to allude to for part of the reason that Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. But listen to what, uh, in the New Testament, what Jude, the commentary on Jude, what it says about Sodom and Gomorrah, verse 7 of the book of Jude. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Now, we could go into Hebrew, which the Old Testament is Hebrew, New Testament's Greek. We could talk about words that, where we could connect stuff and, and the connection to homosexuality and the case for same-sex intimacy and all that, but it's less than obvious in this particular story. So we're just going to move on and to, the, to the more obvious text for sake of time, the ones that are, that are very clear. And so we move in the Old Testament... Uh, to the book of Leviticus. And in Leviticus, uh, it's a book about holiness. It's a book about a holy God with holy priests that wear holy clothes, living in the holy land, uh, serving in the holy, uh, a holy place called the tabernacle, using holy utensils and holy objects, celebrating holy days, uh, living by a holy law. So they become, could become altogether a holy nation. And so these laws are all about living holy and all the things you need to do to live holy. So it's the book of basically rules for living a holy Holy life, and there's some rules that are ceremonial rules or laws. Some are food laws, and you look at this. And again, we don't have time to go into it. Um, but the ceremonial laws, some of those uh, those food laws, no longer apply today. We and you can look in the New Testament. You can see Jesus. You can see the uh, the New Testament talk about that that we no longer are under those uh, those ceremonial laws, those food laws. But the moral law that we find is carried over into the New Testament. The moral law. It's still wrong to murder people. Um, there's things that have been carried on into the New Testament, and these holy uh, these laws that are talking about here, this moral law is part of that. So in Leviticus 18, verse 22, part of that moral law, it says this: "You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination." Chapter 18. 
again, is all about holiness. When you look at that entire chapter, it's talking about holiness as it relates to, to the family, as it, as it relates to sexual activity. So it gives the basics of incest is bad, taking some rival's wife is bad, adultery is bad, killing your children is bad, homosexual activity is bad, bestiality is bad, things that are bad. It kind of just lists and kind of goes through them. Leviticus 20, you go on, and it's kind of a similar kind of thing. And again, verse 13, it says this, If a man lies with a male as with a woman... Both of them have committed an abomination. And again, if you look at verse chapter 20 and you look at what all it's talking about, it's kind of the no-nos of, you know, don't marry your, don't, don't have sex with your mom or your aunt or just kind of those kind of things, the, 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 the relationship kind of stuff. And it talks about homosexuality here in verse 13. Again, as part of the, what has been called the holiness code, the moral law. So we have those Old Testament references, and then we move to the New Testament. In the New Testament, uh, in what is arguably Paul's greatest uh, letter that he writes to the book or to the to the church at Rome, he is unambiguously clear in his words. Uh, now, in, ch- in chapter one, he has been talking prior to this. He's been talking about some exchanges, and the in these exchanges are things that. Uh, we men, because he's, he's talking about we're all sinners. It's kind of the big, big story here. But but he talks about that we have exchanged some things for uh, what God's truth is, and there's wrath that uh, that is in store when we exchange what God's ideas are with our own. And so, in verse 26, here's another one of those exchanges, and he says this: For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged. Natural relations for those who are those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So again, Paul is making the case that here in Rome that, that, that we're sinners, we're sinful. And he's, what he's talking about here in this progression of that is that, 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 that people have exchanged, he said, men and women have exchanged what is natural, the, natu- the exchanging natural sexual relations for those that are contrary to nature, is what he's, what he's saying. And again, we don't have time to go, go back. I, I, I took Greek for years in college, so none of you would have to, okay? Um, and so we could go back, and we could talk about the Greek, and talk about, and we could parse some <laughs> verbs and whatnot, and we could talk about, but suffice it to say, the language that it is talking about homosexuality is clear without question. There's a couple other passages in the New Testament. There's only two more. One is in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, and it says this, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, and, and, and when we're talking about homosexuality, you need to get that, that there are all types of sexual sin, and sexual sin is sexual sin. So uh, even though we're talking about this specifically, uh, adultery, uh, uh, living with your, your uh, soon-to-be wife uh, prior to marriage and, and having sex, that's, 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 it's all wrong okay according to scripture so let's just kind of get the cookies on the bottom shelf so we all get that so we're not uh, you know saying that this is worse than something else but it's it's in the mix so do not be deceived neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters nor adulterers nor uh, men who practice homosexuality nor thieves nor the greedy nor drunkards nor revilers nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God 
And so you see homosexuality is part of this longer list of sins of those that will not inherit the kingdom. And then the last passage in the New Testament we see in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. It says this, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understand this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. For the ungodly and the sinners. Basically saying so you kind of, people can see that, that, they're, that they're, they're sinning. For the unholy and profane. And then he kind of lists those that are, that are in that category. For those who strike their fathers and mothers. For murderers. For the sexually immoral. Men who practice homosexuality. Enslavers. Liars. Perjurers. And whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. In accordance with the glorious gospel of the blessed God. With which I have been entrusted. So let me just kind of summarize the passages of Scripture, about seven of them, that talk about homosexuality in Scripture. It's clear and consistently taught and affirmed with one voice from Genesis to Revelation that homosexual activity is sexual immorality to God. Again, it's one of many sexual sins but it is one of the sexual sins that Scripture talks about. And when uh, we, because you know that we, you know, some would want to say, well, um, there's, there's, you know, I think probably there's support for, for a positive uh, view of homosexuality in Scripture. And so let me just kind of say this. These, this is, I'm kind of summarizing some things from uh, some scholars, and they say this. There is clearly no text in Scripture that affirms or supports the practice of homosexuality. Now listen to what I have to say. There are arguments, however, that the texts don't mean what they say they mean. Okay? And there's also uh, arguments that specific texts that are clear should be ignored for other reasons, but you cannot absolutely look in Scripture anywhere and say that Scripture anywhere supports in a positive way homosexual activity you cannot say that you can say it doesn't mean what it says you can say you need to ignore it for other reasons but you cannot say anywhere that scripture is not clearly clear that that uh, when it talks about homosexuality in the practice so we live in a world where there's a lot of a disagreement about what uh, about homosexuality within the culture that we live in for myself, for this church, for basically the last 20 centuries, Judaism, Christianity, the last 20 centuries are very clear on their conclusions about these texts. Just what I told you that as scripture states that, uh, that, 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 that we see it as sin. But there's objections to uh, that position and I just want to go over it just four real quick. And one is not that much, the next is not the same, the third would be not that, it's not that big a deal, and the fourth is it's not fair. We'll, we'll cover them real quick. The first is uh, not that much. And so the first objection is, well, you know what, there's not that much that the Bible has to say. There's seven passages, this is a big book, there's only seven verses or texts that have anything to do or to say about homosexuality within Scripture. And so, well, not that much. And I would agree in, in, a, in, in one sense that that's true, that there's not a ton of Scripture, that, that the point of Scripture is not to talk about homosexuality that is not the point of scripture it's not the thing that scripture talks about all the time it's not I can tell you it's not the thing that we as a church are going to talk about all the time there there is I have never in 25 years preached a sermon I so much did not want to preach as tonight this weekend but again if I'm going to be true to God's word and the call that I have on my life 
And what is in front of our culture, I must. And so when we think about uh, this idea that, uh, 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 that, that, that there's, there's not much that the Bible has to say about it, well, uh, it, that, that doesn't mean that, that there's just a few obscure little scriptural fragments that you can't really understand that are kind of vague, because that's not the case. The ones that we see in scripture are very clear. And so the reason the Bible doesn't say a whole lot about it, I think one thing I would throw out to us is that it was compared comparatively an uncontroversial sin among the Jews and early Christians. They, it wasn't something they were talking about. It wasn't something they wondered about. It wasn't something they were debating. There's no evidence in Judaism or early Christianity that they tolerated any expression of homosexuality. The Bible has a lot to say about idolatry and religious hypocrisy and economic injustice and, and pagan worship because they were common sins that the, people, the Jewish people dealt with, the first century people were dealing with. But this, again, was just not something that they were struggling with because they got it. They got Got the memo that uh, about what was uh, on this particular issue. Counting the number of times Scripture talks about something and calls something a sin is not a good way to decide if you're going to be obedient to what Scripture says or not. Another thing to consider is that it's not really confusing about what Scripture has to say about homosexual homosexual activity. Pim Pronk, who is a gay Dutch biblical scholar who would say that homosexuality is okay, but he says it for a whole another set of reasons. Here's what he says about Scripture. He says this, Wherever homosexual intercourse is mentioned in Scripture, it is condemned. Rejection is a foregone conclusion. That's from a biblical scholar that believes it's okay, but he just says you can't argue that from Scripture. The passages that are in Scripture are very clear in what they say. So even though there's not a ton of places in Scripture that talk about the issue, the cases that are stated, uh, the places where it is stated, you cannot overstate the case that it is very serious the way that the Bible treats sexual immorality itself and homosexuality. There are eight vice lists, the list of things that you shouldn't do, vices, in Scripture. Sexual immorality is on every one of them, and seven of the eight have multiple references to sexual immorality on those vice lists. Sexual immorality is a big deal. The Bible says more than enough about homosexual practice for us to say something as well. We cannot just be silent. Second objection. Well, it's not the same. And so they, those that, uh, what we call those in the revisionist camp, and those in the revisionist camp would be people that would want to take Scripture and want to revise what we believe about it. And those in the revisionist camp would say, well, actually what is being talked about in the Bible is different than what was, uh, is, is what we're talking about today. And so it doesn't apply, is, in other words, is what they would say. Um, they would say that uh, the Bible was talking about a different kind of homosexuality. And the things that uh, culture has so changed and things have changed so much that we can ignore those passages. They would say that monogamous, committed, same-sex relationships are not what Scripture is condemning. They would say that Scripture is condemning uh, having uh, men having sex with boys, that, that slave masters having sex with their slaves, some kind of exploitation, and that's what is being talked about. Now, to make that case, there's a, a fallacy of logic called... An argument from silence. 
And as you look at this argument, that argument that doesn't apply more is an argument from silence. Nowhere does the Bible limit its condemnation of homosexuality to man-boy relationships or relationships, some form of exploitation. Scholars in the ancient world agree that, that homosexuality, that what we're talking about in, this, in, in our culture that we're struggling with as a culture, everybody agrees that man-boy exploitation of any kind is absolutely wrong. Both sides, no matter what you think about the issue, everybody agrees on that. And what we're, what, what's being talked about is what's the belief about um, uh, committed long-term kind of relationships is, that, is what's being talked about. When you look at the biblical uh, scholars, or ancient historical scholars, they would say that in the first centuries, in Bible times, that there were those types of relationships. You can go and you can study ancient history, and you can see that it wasn't a, what we're, what's happening in our culture is not a new thing. So uh, there were words that the, the, the Bible writers could have used. If they were talking about uh, man-boy sex, if that's what they were talking about, they, there, were, there were Greek words that they could have used. They didn't need to use these words that talk about homosexuality in general. They were talking about homosexuality in general because they were talking about homosexuality in general. Because they meant to use the words that they meant. You look at what Romans says. And it says they exchanged sexual intercourse with the opposite sex and described it as unnatural, the, the relations that they have with persons of the same sex. So the, again, the biblical writers are, use, are, are consciously using words to... Talk about this sex act in absolute terms. I'm going to put some of these resources I've used in this study. I'll put them on the web uh, underneath this sermon if you want to go back or refer something to this. Uh, and so I'll put some of this in here. But De Young, one of the books that, that I used as I was studying, he said this. He summarized it when he said, The only way to think the Bible is talking about every other kind of homosexuality except the kind we want to affirm is to be less than honest with the text. And less than honest with ourselves. There's another objection that says, well, it's not that big a deal. Uh, for instance, you know, what, what, you know, we believe different things. The churches believe different things in town about uh, should women be in ministry? What's going to happen at the end of time? Uh, what should we call the church? There's all kinds of debate about that. And this is just one of those agree to disagree kind of things. Well, here's the problem with that. None of those other things our sin salvation issues. I want to remind you what, what Corinthians says. I don't know if we could put that scripture back up, that Corinthian passage in 1 Corinthians. But it says this, Did you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor, those who pra- nor men who practice homosexuality. And what does it say is not going to happen? They will not inherit the kingdom of God. That is a big deal. This issue matters. This is a sin salvation issue. It's a kingdom of God issue. There's a last objection, and it's this. Well, it just doesn't seem fair. And this probably, if you have struggled with this issue, this is probably the place you've struggled probably the most. You might have a son or a daughter that has struggled with same-sex attraction. You might have a buddy from college or uh, someone that you're very close to, a beloved aunt or uh, someone in your family, and you see them in a committed relationship, and they seem happy and healthy, and, and everything seems good, and it just seems to you that it just doesn't feel fair. I mean, I mean, why would God do this? Why would, why would God want the, you know, someone to not be happy and content and, and all those kind of things and have a, have a relationship like I have or, or whatever? Why? 
Or maybe you struggle with, with some of these feelings yourself and you ask yourself the question, it just doesn't seem fair. I had a young lady in my office and we talked about all these issues. And, and, and she, she wanted to, she so wanted to do what was right and to, to know what God's word said. And, and so we talked about that and, and there was, there was, she was so sincere and she just felt like it wasn't fair. The conclusion that we may come to and that many in our world come to is that, well, God made me this way and, and, and it can't be wrong for me. This is the way that I was created and I just need to be what I was created to be, except all of us are sinners. And all of us are born with this nature, this bent to sin, bent to desire things that God has outlined in Scripture that are sin. And just because we want something, just because we desire something does not make it right. The, the couple that loves each other is committed to each other. And you know, the young couple that decides, you know what, we're in love, so, so we'll have sex. It's no big deal. We're not married, but it's, it's not that big a deal because we love each other. Because, I mean, how could love be wrong? And, and kind of that idea. Or the, the guy at work that, that his, his, he's in this uh, uh, marriage that he feels is some dead end. And, 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 and she has closed her, my wife has closed herself off to me and, and those kind of issues. And here's this woman that's very receptive to me so how can it be wrong I I want her I desire her I'm not hurting anybody it's just a it's a relationship it's two adults consenting adults how could that be wrong God never promised never alluded to or hinted at the idea that everything in this life was going to be fair all of us have struggles all of us have temptations and we've been called to choose holiness and obedience and faithfulness. And in many cases, that's going to go against what our heart wants and longs for and what feels fair. Here's what's at stake. If we ignore 20 centuries of what has been clear in Scripture, if we decide that we know more and we know better, and the Scripture is... It's not saying what it's saying. If we decide something different, here's what's at stake. Two things. One, the grand narrative of Scripture is at stake. The grand narrative of Scripture that says that we're all sinners in need of a Savior. And the grand narrative that says that sin has destroyed our relationship with God. And that God sent His one and only Son into this world to repair that broken relationship that we have. That as we put our faith in him, as we trust him, that our lives can be made new. The, the sin nature that we have can, can, be, can be brought under the, the power of the Holy Spirit. And that, that, w- that we can find freedom in this life. That grand narrative of scripture. But if we ignore it, instead we replace it with finding freedom in ourselves and from ourselves. By acting on the desires that we were born with and and living that out. And so the grand narrative of scripture about dying to self and following Jesus and taking your cross and following me, it all goes by the wayside. Because it's all about exchanging our ideas about God and what's right and wrong for God's. And we decide instead of him. Because we know better. The second thing that's at stake is biblical authority. Are we going to allow Scripture to be the final authority in our lives? Are we going to apply God's Word to our lives as we hunger and thirst after righteousness? Not, I'm going to hunger and thirst after this piece of the 
of the uh, of the pizza that I want, but, you know, the one without the anchovies, without the, you know, that that one. I don't like all that other stuff, so I'll take this one slice. That's not what the scripture says. As we hunger and thirst after the entire pizza, after the entire what it means to live right and to live righteous in this world, as we hunger and st- strive after that, that's when we will be satisfied. And so biblical authority is at stake. But we decide that instead of biblical authority that we are going to live our lives based on our own feelings and our own experiences and the experiences of others. And what I feel seems fair. And that becomes a higher authority to God and to his word. Now moving forward, let me read one final passage, John 14, 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of his only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. First church, here's where we go from here. I want to call us as a church to strive to be a place that Jesus envisioned filled with grace and truth. There's a lot of churches that have, have opted to be a church of truth, and they have no love, they have no grace, and they, 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 they rail at the world, and they, they, they stand out, and they protest, and they, they put hateful things on signs, and there is no grace, and there is no, there is no love. And we're not going to be a church like that. We're going to love anybody that comes into this place. The other uh, Option is to be a church that, that is all about grace with no truth and would say, you know what, it doesn't matter. This is one of those things, this is one of those debatable issues, it really doesn't matter. You just come, we'll accept you, we'll love you just like you are. You don't need to change, you can just be yourself, you can whatever sin, whatever, you, it, doesn't, it does not matter. We found another way, a third way instead, and so we'll be all about grace, but we'll ignore truth. And we, friends, must strive to be a church filled with truth and grace. And with that, I want to call my friend up, Scott, um, and his wife Lynette. Have uh, here's a mic. Uh, Scott and Lynette have um, been on a little journey uh, yourselves. And can you just tell us briefly, kind of your own uh, journey, Scott? Um, it started about seven years ago. Um, I happen to be down in Mexico doing a, a mission trip, and I get a phone call from my wife saying that she just kicked our daughter out of the house uh, because she caught her downstairs uh, with another girl. So much to my chagrin, um, dealing with 68 kids in Mexico became a very small issue. And the good news was uh, it started us on a big, long path of understanding how God looks at us. He doesn't look at us through performance-based love. He loves us for who we are. And it took me a very long time to get my head around that because there was anger, frustration, um, hopelessness. No one could identify with uh, what we were going through. We left the church for about six months. Because you guys just kind of felt alone. Yes. And, um, and I'm an introvert, so that's a real big issue. Um, He's not. <laughs> the good news was uh, that it, we started to pursue uh, the truth from the word. 
uh, through Bible studies, you know, and I was very heavy into BSF before, and so I had a, a good understanding at least where to look. And since we didn't have all the answers, um, it was a process. And I think I had my biggest epiphany doing uh, The Prodigal God and Tim Keller. by Tim Keller. And it, it forced me to realize um, I have two children. I have a son and a daughter, and my daughter decided to go off into the world. And it was my job to be the dad and, and pursue her with a, with a heart of love. That took a lot, and I won't lie to you, it's, it's still in process, but there's hope. I mean, we had her and her girlfriend over at our house this summer. That took a lot for us. We have rules in our house, and there are boundaries, and that was one that, if it wasn't by the grace of God that my wife met with another woman and told her story. They learn from each other, and through a lot of prayer, 